All right, you guys ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Hello, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Macabre Family Hour. I'm Carrie. And I'm Cassidy. Join us as we investigate all things spooky, weird, bizarre, and totally out there. From hauntings to murders, investigations of the paranormal to random occurrences throughout history, there is nothing too grim for us. It's time to grab a drink, turn down the lights, and settle in. Cass and I are happy to be joined today by a very special guest tonight. It's our sister, Shalise. Hey, Shalise, how are you? Hi, I'm really good. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so happy you joined. Yeah, uh, the other part of us, the third yeah. of our whole. Now we got a whole macabre family going now. <laughs> so since Shalise is joining us all the way from Texas tonight, I think Cass has chosen to take us down to the Lone Star State for this episode. Cass, yes. why don't you start us off with the show? Yeah, here we go. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a serial killer in Texas. And he's also known as the Eyeball Killer. Hmm, I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Buckle up. Why is he the Eyeball Killer? Does he kill people with eyeballs? You'll find out. I'm not going to give it away <laughs> now. Eyeballs out? No, You'll that'd be too out. obvious. <laughs> so, Charles Albright was born in Amarillo, Texas. All right, Amarillo. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, he could be your neighbor. Oh, could have been. Could have. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit ago. He was born no. on 19, in August 10th, 1933. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. That was a little long not. ago. Maybe his great-grandkids are somewhere around there. Yeah. So Charles was adopted three weeks later as an only child to Fred and Del Albright, who lived in Dallas. Okay. Mm. Del doted on Charles, but was also very strict. She kept goats so that he would only drink goat's milk instead of cow's milk. Gross. Weird. Yeah. Gross. Oh, I'm not a fan. She would change nothing his- but, Nothing but 2% whole, either of those almond. cow milks. Almond. Almond. <laughs> it's not cow milk, but yeah. I'd, I'd rather almond than goat milk, though. <laughs> yeah, probably. She would change his clothes multiple times a day to keep him clean. It is dusty down there. Yeah, it is. Oh, my gosh. I can't keep my house clean. <laughs> <laughs> and when he wouldn't take a nap, she would tie him to his bed. Oh, I should try that. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I might get mad. For real. He would get out of their fence and his mother found out he was asking people to lift him up who were passing. Which, as I'm saying it, that's weird. That's I wouldn't weird. <laughs> strange. Yeah, like, <laughs> like just walking like up to the fence with his arms in the air, looking yeah. at the strangers passing by, kind of. Yeah. And were strangers actually lifting him? That's yes. even weirder. He would Times were different the back then. Way. Yeah. Well, so Dell decided to fix this problem by tying him to the porch when he was outside. Like a dog. <laughs> like a dog. Quickly after receiving his first gun, Charles began shooting small animals, which is one of the telltale signs of a serial killer. Oh, yeah. Or a hunter in Texas. Well, that's true. Uh, Yeah, we got a lot of those, too. (laughs) He decided he wanted to become a taxidermist and learn to skin and stuff animals with the help of his mother. Okay, that's a little more creepy. Also kind of creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) there was one thing about this that fascinated him the most. The eyes. 
Dell was frugal and didn't let Charles buy the fake eyes because they were pretty expensive for back then. So instead, she would have him use buttons from a collection she kept for sewing. Oh, that's so weird. Like a doll's eyes. Uh, like that movie Coraline. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is also how Tim Burton decided to uh, create most of his characters growing up. Yes. So because he wouldn't, she wouldn't let him have eyes for his taxidermy animals, he would take a bus and spend time at a local taxidermy store and spend hours looking at the different eyes they had. And he recalled that he wanted to collect them, similar to collecting marbles. So he had like an eye fetish. I mean, I don't know if it would be a fetish, but... It's only if he makes love to him later. I guess <laughs> oh, we'll see. yeah. I guess that's the wrong <laughs> word to use. <laughs> During Who his knows? younger, Yeah, we don't know. During his younger years, Charles got into trouble with the law pretty quickly. At just 13, Charles was convicted of aggravated assault. Then at 14, his parents bought him his own piece of property. He was even featured in the local news. At 14? Yeah, 14. He was a landowner at 14. Yes. How big a piece of property are we talking here? You know, I do not know. But they had quite a few. Yeah. And then at the age of 15, Charles moved up two grades and graduated high school. His mother would spend a lot of time teaching him at home. And so he was pretty smart. So he's an intelligent boy. Yep. So following his graduation from high school, Charles enrolled at North Texas State College in Denton at the age of 15. Do you know where he, Denton is? Denton? Uh, it's near Dallas. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is all. Dang, all you're good with your right Texas geography. I wasn't really sure if you'd <laughs> get that one. I had to think about that one. <laughs> you did it quick. He, while he was at school, he was arrested for being a part of a burglaring with a Burg- burgling? <laughs> start Burglarization? No, I said that wrong. I got to start <laughs> over. Hold on, guys. <laughs> While he was at school, he was arrested for being part of a burglary ring with other boys who broke in and stole with from three stores. Police caught him with some cash, two handguns, and a rifle. His mother... Where would you get all of that from at that age? It's Texas. He stole it. Well, maybe. Did I miss that part? <laughs> I assumed he's, that he's just everybody in Texas had all that. <laughs> well, they do. Cash. And I'm sure he probably got it from his parents is where he probably got it from. Cash, guns, and a rifle? Yeah. Every Texas home has them. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeehaw. His mother did everything she could to keep him out of prison, including asking to be his lawyer and going as far as to ask to take his place in prison. Oh, wow. Yeah. She like thanked the judge, but to no avail. Charlie ended up spending one year in prison. On his release, he appeared to have turned a new corner. Charles transferred to Arkansas State College. Charles transferred to Arkansas State Teachers College in Conway, Arkansas in 1952. Here, he was very successful in his academics. He was the president of the French club editor of the yearbook, and he was also on the student council. Jeez. Yeah. He's such a advanced little man. Yeah. You gotta be careful of those smart ones. Mm-hmm. Yep, for real. He was also known as the class clown and played several pranks, a few including cooking a steak dinner for his friends in the home economics building, 
stealing a physics test and making copies of it, and even changing his grades to A's and forging signatures on his report cards. This guy sounds awesome. Was he in a frat? <laughs> no, he he was on the football team, though. That's even cooler. <laughs> he did a few petty crimes, like breaking into neighborhood ch- breaking into the neighborhood church and stealing a watch, but nothing too serious at the time. Alfred Jones, a man that knew Charlie and his mother around that time, stated he could divorce reality sufficiently from his value system so that he could tell you something false and at the time actually believe he was telling you the truth. So he was a good liar. Yeah, very good liar. Manipulative, would that be? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very. The most memorable prank was on his friend. We'll just call him Paul. I made up this name. It's not his real name. So Paul broke up with his girlfriend, who was known as the most beautiful woman on campus. In a fit of rage, Paul ripped up all the pictures of her and put them in the trash in his dorm room. Not long after, Paul had a new girlfriend. One night, when Paul went back to his dorm, he realized that in a photo he had of his girlfriend, someone had cut out her eyes and replaced them with the eyes of his ex-girlfriend. And he noticed that? Well, then he noticed there was another pair of his ex-girlfriend's eyes ripped up from the ripped up photos on the ceiling. How big are these photos? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That's true. I'm picturing like little wallet-sized eyes. I'm like, who noticed that? (laughs) Well, there was also another set on the urinal in the men's bathroom. I feel like that would be pretty noticeable. A little tiny set of eyes there. Yeah. That's not usually where eyes are located. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> I know from experience, there's not a lot of eyes in urinals. Yeah. So it uh, became known that Paul, so Paul threw away the ripped photos. Charles took them and cut out the eyes of his ex-girlfriend and pasted them everywhere Paul would see them. Weird. weird. A little while later, Paul was kicked out of school after being caught with stolen property again, uh, which included the football coach's golf clubs. So he was like, you are out of here. Last chance. Yeah. While he attended Arkansas State Teachers College, Charles did meet a girl named Betty Nestor and ended up marrying her on December 27th, 1954, at the age of 20, and they had a daughter. God, I can't believe he's only 20 at this point. All of this has happened. Right? So much has already happened in his life, and he's 20. Landowner, college, president of the yearbook, football team. So after Arkansas State Teachers College, Charles didn't really hold on to jobs for very long. He had numerous different careers, including a designer for an airplane company, illustrator, carpenter. He made baseball bats. He collected movie posters. And then he oh, got yeah, his, a lot of things. Yeah, a lot, a lot of different things. <laughs> and he also got his beautician's license and proceeded. <laughs> And persuaded a salon <laughs> to hire him. What? That's so random. <laughs> no. He was living a crazy life. So, and was he 21 now? <laughs> I don't know That's his exact age at this time. He told the stylist he was a good painter, and he was. So the stylist paid him $250 to paint a portrait of his wife. After a few weeks of waiting, the man wanted to see the painting in progress. The painting was beautiful and realistic. Her hair, nose, mouth, everything was painted perfectly, except for one or two things. Oh, her eyes. eyes. Yeah, there were buttons. (laughs) Uh, 
Oh. There were white holes where her eyes should have been. <laughs> he said he wasn't ready to paint her eyes yet. What? And after a few additional months of working on just the eyes, Charles gave him the painting to the stylist. Months of eye work. Months of just working on the eyes. Jesus. What the heck? Yeah. Had to be perfect. Maybe he does have an eye fetish. You might be onto something. Yeah. yeah. In 1969, Charles became a science teacher in Crandall, a small town east of Dallas. Never Prin- heard of it. Yeah, me neither. Now you know. It's east of Dallas. The principal was impressed with his master's degree in biology from East Texas State University and that he was working on his second master's in counseling and guidance. Later, the principal found out he forged all of his credentials. Charles didn't he even have a bachelor's didn't degree. Didn't have a bachelor's <laughs> Yeah. Didn't have, I was going to say master's. He didn't have a master's? Oh my gosh. Yeah, didn't have one of those for sure. Uh-huh. He pled guilty to fraud and received one year's probation. God, he just gets off easy. Yeah, he oh, does. Just wait. I'm about to go through a string of crimes. Okay. Um, but do we first, have dates on these? Oh. Yes, I do. In 1971, he separated from his wife. About how old is he now? Do we? When was he uh, born? 33? 33. So it's 71. To 50s. Am I doing my mouth right? 40. Yeah, no. <laughs> Late 30s, I think. <laughs> 38. Late oh, 30s. No. 50s. <laughs> Close okay. to least. So he's only 38 at this point? Yeah. Only He's gone through a lot. For real. So I'll go through this little string of crimes that he had. In 1971, he got probation for forging cashier's checks. And then in 1979, probation for shoplifting two bottles of perfume. In 1980, he was arrested and sent to prison for stealing a saw and spent six months there. For a saw? Uh Uh-huh. And then in 1981, things took a little bit of a turn. Albright sexually molested the young daughter of a family who he had befriended. Oh, it's a slow escalation. Yeah. From petty crimes to... Seriously, potentially violent ones. Yeah. He ended up pleading guilty and only received probation. That's it? Yeah. They didn't really. The family didn't want to bring it to trial. So they gave him a plea bargain because. And even if it. was a young girl. Sorry. Yeah. And even if it went to trial back then, it really was just a slap on the wrist. It was like, yeah, boys will be boys. Ugh. So that same year in 1981. His mother died. That's and always then, hard. Yeah, it was hard on him. And then in 1986, his father, Fred, dies. Wow. Al- Albright inherited around $100,000 and moved back to Texas, bringing his new love, Dixie Austin. Back to Texas where? He was in Ar- Arkansas at that time. So back to know, Dallas. Back to Dallas. Oh, yes, oh. back to Dallas. Yeah, okay. where his family is all from. And what was her name? Dixie Austin. That's Sounds a dog's like a name. Country singer. Yeah, it does. He inherited several. What? Or a dog, like what Carrie said. <laughs> I'm going to name my next dog that. <laughs> Dixie Austin. Dixie Austin. So after his father died, Charles inherited several properties and homes of his parents and left them all in his father's name to honor him. Okay. One of, the phone, one of the homes he had, he rented to a man named Axton Schindler, a truck driver. 
He wasn't a great tenant, but for some reason, Albright let him stay. So in October of 1990, a few years after his um, father passed, he was living with Dixie in the family's home at 1035 El Dorado. And he got a job delivering newspapers for the Dallas Times Herald in the middle of the night. And at this point, he's it's 1990. Yes. So he's late 50s. Yeah. It's suspected that he did this to visit prostitutes without concerning his wife and possibly do other gruesome things. I was going to say, because he has a night job, that that probably wasn't all he was doing. Yeah, 100%. Dixie believed she found Prince Charming, but little did she know, Charles lived a separate life. Charles was well-known. personalities. Yeah. Charles was well-known to many sex workers and was even friends with several. He was a frequent visitor on these areas where they waited on street corners and had a series of relationships with these women after his mother died. He would bring them to the several properties that he had inherited from his parents so that Dixie didn't know. And at the time he met Dixie, he was a regular to many and a sugar daddy to others. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he had lots of properties, lots of land, lots of tenants. Yep. And lots of sex workers. And lots of sex workers. That is a dangerous combination. Yeah. Well, they, the sex workers would talk and would tell each other that he was someone to be safe with. Oh. Oh. Because they knew him so well that they all really trusted him. Swell guy. Yes. (laughs) So that same year that he got the job at the newspaper on December 12th, 1990, the first body in a series of sex workers murders was found. The body of 33-year-old mother, Mary Pratt, was found naked with her t-shirt and bra pushed up over her breasts. She was bruised on her face and her eyes were shut. She also had a gunshot in her head by a 44 caliber bullet. Mary was an experienced prostitute who worked at the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. She used all of her money to buy drugs and would stand on her corner in jeans, small t-shirts, and tennis shoes. At the end of the night, she would ask her last client to drop her off at her parents' house, an older couple who weren't aware of what she did. So they knew this. This they knew that this was a dumped body because she had been working on Jefferson Boulevard, but her body was found in a residential area further away. So she was well known to the, the authorities already prior to being found. I think murdered. I'm sure. I'm sure because a lot of these women were arrested arrested frequently. Yeah, because they were. Pro- yeah, they were just standing on the street, so they knew what they were doing. Um, and at the scene of her murder, there was no weapon and there was little evidence. So homicide detective John Westphalen of the Dallas Police Department Department was assigned to the case. He was one of the best investigators at the department. And when he went to watch the autopsy of Mary Pratt with his partner, Stan McNear. Now, they believe that this would be pretty routine. She died from a gunshot to the head. Medical examiner lifted Pratt's right eyelid to note the eye color in the autopsy report, then the left, and discovered she had no eyeballs. Oh, no. Uh, I knew that was coming. You guessed it. No tissue was left in there. Nothing. He just carved them out, spooned them out, probably. And then kept them. He actually didn't spoon them out. He meticulously cut them out. So in order for him to do this without disturbing the eyelid so that nobody knew from the outside, he had to cut six muscles holding the eye in its socket and the optical nerve. So it was precision. Man, he must have known his biology. He might have had a master's. Maybe he was a taxidermist. (laughs) 
Oh, a taxidermist. That's right. He was. Yeah. Two months before the body of Mary Pratt was found, patrol officers John Matthews and Regina Smith were assigned to Jefferson Boulevard, which included the area Mary Pratt worked. They were instructed to close in on small crimes, including theft and prostitution, and they spent a lot of time patrolling and stalking and staking out the Star Motel. They knew quite a few sex workers in the area, and following the murder of Mary Pratt, the other sex workers believed it was someone that Mary Pratt knew. I mean, it always is usually the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not always. Not always, but that's their first. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's usually a pretty good assumption to start there. Yeah. Assumption. Yeah. Yeah. The officers didn't have much to go on, but were intrigued about one conversation in particular that they had with another local sex worker. They noticed a gash on the throat and forehead of Veronica Rodriguez. She said that a white man had picked her up and drove her south to a field where he raped her and then tried to kill her. She claimed that she escaped and ran barefoot in a field towards toward a house. The man in the house happened to be someone that Veronica knew, and someone that also knew the man that was raping her. That's not good for him. Nope. Well, uh, Matthews and Smith didn't really do much of this because Veronica was known as a liar. She would lie to them all the time. So they were like, yeah, mm. yeah. So they didn't believe her. Yeah. They well, were like, they're always hmm. caught by the authorities. So of course they're going to lie all yeah, the time. Exactly. They're always yeah. in trouble. Yep. So it's like the boy who cried wolf. I mean, when you're finally in danger and yep. you really need someone to believe you. Yeah. Why so shouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. It sucks. So then a few days later, while they were checking out a suspicious vehicle near Oak Cliff, they saw Veronica in an 18 wheeler truck with a man named Axton Schindler. If you recall... I remember that Schindler's name because I was thinking of Schindler's list, so it Mm -hmm. all kind of... Axton Schindler lived at uh, one of Charles Outright's houses. That's right. He wasn't the great tenant, but he was good enough. Yep. Um, And she was, quote-unquote, working, so they were trying to arrest him. And um, in order for him not to get arrested, she kept saying that this is the man who saved her from when she was almost murdered and begged them to leave him alone and not arrest him. Oh. Yeah. So he probably did recognize... Charles Albright. Charles Albright. Mm -hmm. But since he was living in his property, he was like, I'm not going to say shit. Well, yeah, he didn't verify her story. was saying that, I don't know what the hell this girl's talking about. Yeah. And his record stated that he lived at 1035 El Dorado. They weren't aware of this at the time, but Axton, instead of writing down his own driver, his own address on his driver's license, he put his landlord's, Charles Albright's. Okay. Weird. Who was under his father's name still for yeah. the property? Yeah. Yeah. And I this don't know was. If that has any connection? I'm just connecting dots here. It it does. Um. And it was just a simple clue that would later really uncover who the killer was. In February of 1991, two months after Mary Pratt's body was found, 27-year-old Susan Peterson was found on a Sunday morning dumped on the same road where Mary Pratt was found. Another sex worker? Yes, Susan was another Mm. sex worker. She was partially nude and was shot in the head, chest, and stomach, and her eyes were closed. Because she was found at the other end of the road, outside the jurisdiction of the previous department, the case fell on the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. 
During the autopsy, the pathologist lifted the eyelids and the detective on the case, Larry Oliver, was called over to take a closer look. Her eyeballs had been carefully removed from the sockets. And so these are different jurisdictions doing the investigations. Different (laughs) medical examiners doing the autopsies and different detectives putting together the clues. So I don't know if it was the same one, but the pathologist knew about the other case. So she told Larry Oliver that the Dallas police department had a similar case just a few months earlier. That's good. Cause back then a lot of police stations and stuff did not communicate that way. And so a lot of these serial killers were allowed to, to go on with their crimes in different locations because police's police authorities didn't communicate the way they do nowadays. Yeah. They were able to get away with a lot more. Yeah. But that's really uh, great of the the examiner, yeah, to, the pathologist to recognize that and inform everybody. Yeah, it together. exactly. So Larry Oliver set out to meet with the original homicide investigator on the previous case, John Westphalen. Nice teamwork. Yeah, go team. At that time, they obviously knew they had a serial killer on their hands. After two murders, that's it. Yeah, because that's the fast. That is fast. Yeah, I mean, they don't. The, it had to have been the eyeballs. That's so particular, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So detectives wanted to keep quiet about the two murders for fear that they would make the killer nervous and he would move to do this to other women in other areas. Mm, yeah. But supervisors felt that they had a greater duty to warn people of the potential dangers. So flyers were posted around the Star Motel asking sex workers to stay off the streets and detectives went to the press with information. That's probably the better way to go instead of keeping it quiet and just waiting, like bait, baiting him out with yeah, another victim. Also, right. And you could also hope that maybe he will just stop and maybe it's not going to happen again because they're on to him. Yeah, yeah, that's possible too. And again, it's... It's so apparent to who the victims are of this one killer. The eyeballs are removed. You know, they're not, this isn't like it's such a common thing that they see everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, something tells me this was not his last victim. No. Well, we're going to go into the detective work for a little bit. So okay. right. following the break. two murders. Yeah, a little break. Following the two murders, John Westphalen filled Four notebooks about the murders. He was determined to figure out who did this. Was he detective one or detective two? Detective one. Okay. From so the I think case. he kind of took over both the cases. Because okay. there's no evidence from either and case. And the other one correct? was a sheriff. Yeah, there's not much evidence in either. The other ones were the sheriff's jurisdictions. Yeah, so but they it probably didn't would mention rather... Larry Oliver again. Who yeah, was they'd the probably rather detective. pass it on to the investigator. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he reexamined the crime scenes and even had an undercover unit staked out at the sex workers areas and would run license plates to see if anything come up, came up on people's records that were driving around there. Smart. Good police work. So jumping back to John Matthews and Regina Smith, who were the two police officers that were talking to Veronica. The ones that did the stakeout. And- yes. Yeah. The ones who are like their daily job is to hang out by these areas where all the sex workers work. 
So they read about the murders on the front page of the newspapers, and they knew Susan Peterson. When they went to work patrolling the Star Motel, as they usually do, this time it was a little different. The sex workers surrounded their car to try and tell them stories about the more aggressive clients so they could figure out who this was. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. So there, but they were, there wasn't much else they could do. They already gave the information about Veronica Rodriguez to the homicide division. So they already made a report about what she said and they weren't getting any additional information at this time. John Westphalen would later say that he never saw these tips and the name Axton, Axton Schindler never crossed his desk. The guy who was brought to with the first investigation, or not the first investigation, the first victim that got away. Yeah, the one that got away. Yep. Yep. So then, on Fort Worth Boulevard in the early hours of March 19th, one month after the death of Susan Peterson, the body of Shirley Williams was found. She was another sex worker and was found was in a residential area. Yep. So at the scene. Same residential area or these different residential areas? It's different. Yep. It's different. There are a few differences in this one. Um, Shirley was a black woman, which and the other two women were white. Mm-hmm. And then Shirley was also completely nude, while the other two women were partially clothed and like displayed out for right. them to be found. Like tops pulled up above their breasts. Yeah, and all like that. right above. Yeah. And she was found in a different location, as we stated. Um, and then there was also, or so at the scene, John Westphalen asked the medical examiner's field agent to look at her eyes. And right on the field, he was like, go look at her eyes. So the field agent went over, lifted up her eyelids and looked at him and said, gone. Gone. Ugh. That's it. So Just creepy. Gone. gone. They're not here anymore. They left. Yeah. They're gone. They don't. I go. Was was she murdered the same way like with gunshot to the head gunshot to the chest so she was actually mutilated she had been shot several times oh Mm -hmm. so mutilated with a firearm yeah and there was also a broken tip of an exacto blade found in her right eye embedded in the skin Uh, an exacto blade like part Uh, of the razor he used to to dissect the eye muscles yes oh my gosh just came off Yes. Gross. That is gnarly. So I know I briefly mentioned Charles' relationships with sex workers, but now that we've gone through the series of murders, I have a little information about just how close Charles was with the women who were murdered. And these were the ones that vouched for him? Oh, no. No, the ones that were murdered. Yeah. That's okay. Not the ones that vouched for him. No. They would not vouch for him now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, no. After that. Yeah, exactly. So Charles had a direct connection to two of the women who were murdered. Okay. Mary Pratt was a friend of someone that Charles dated. Huh. And he would bring Mary Pratt and her friend over to his house for parties all the time. Mm. Just the three of them parties or like parties? I think more than that. I think they had like a group of people. And others said that he was a regular customer of Mary's. Because Mary told the other sex workers that he was good in bed and paid a little more than what was expected. Maybe because he was dating her friend. I don't know. Yeah, or he was trying to <laughs> gain her trust. Yeah. So he also had a relationship with Susan Peterson, the second woman that was murdered. 
In fact, he was even listed as her co-signer on bond applications at Ranger Bail Bonds, a company that she used to bail her out of jail. Whoa. Oh, weird. Yeah. They so were she was close. indebted to him. Yeah. He was her sugar daddy. So not uh, really because yeah. she would just give him sex and he would care for her when she needed it. And pull her out of jail and put his own money on the line so that she wouldn't jump town. Yep. He would buy her things and let her, let her stay at places that he owned. So they were pretty close. After the third murder, police started questioning other sex workers in the area. Um, one in the area or the areas like the area where this new one was found or the area prior or both or all. So not where they were found. It was the star motel. So that was where just pick like, them all up. Yeah. It was like on Jefferson Boulevard. So he picked up all three in the same area. Yep. Yep. Okay. From the star motel. Yeah. And then gotcha. we take them elsewhere, which <clears throat> exactly what Brenda White them in different spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This next lady kind of gives you an idea as to what he does. So Brenda White retold an incident that happened to her recently. A white man with salt and pepper hair picked her up and asked to take her to a different area instead of the Star Motel. Interesting. She was a veteran, so she knew this is a no-no. You always take clients to the Star Motel because the ladies felt safe there. They had all of the people that they were working with and their friends who were around. And after everything that's happened, why would you go somewhere else? You want to get back to your community, your people. Yeah. Definitely. So she refused, which infuriated the man, and he started beating her and saying he would kill her and all of the prostitutes of her kind. Mm. Huh. That's not suspicious at all. Yikes. Yeah. So Brenda maced him and jumped out of the car and ran. So she got away. She maced him? Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. I'm sure that makes motherfucker. So uh, Brenda's Brenda Wright told Matthews and Smith that. Then the next day, when Matthews and Smith checked in at the station, they ran another check on the address of Axton Schindler because Brenda White's story reminded them of the story that they had been told previously by Veronica Rodriguez. So they were Back like, you before know what? all the murders. Yeah. They were like, let's just huh? run his address one more time. These, like, these are good detectives. Yeah, they're they not are. detectives. They're, they're the or, people that are, yeah, which is crazy because they really were the ones who were just caught this murderer. Yeah. This is 100%. great detective work. Yeah. They should be detectives. Yeah. <laughs> so because county government computers contain more information than city computers, Matthews and Smith drove to the Dallas County Const- Constable's office where a deputy, Walter Cook, was on duty and agreed to help them. Walter ran a search on the address that was on Axton Schindler's driver's license, 1035 El Dorado, and the property belonged to a Fred Albright. And that was the father. Yep. Yes, his father. So they proceeded to search for other properties owned by Fred Albright. They found one in Cotton Valley, a neighborhood in in South Dallas, where the bodies of Susan Peterson and Mary Pratt were found. And then two properties near the area where Shirley Williams was found. Oh. Hmm. Lots of things are connecting. Yes, they're (laughs) connecting the dots. Then they figured out that Fred had passed away. Which Uh led them. That's a red flag. Yeah. Which led them to his son, Charles Albright. Of course. Good old Charlie. Found him. Yeah. They found his criminal record and a mugshot. So Walter Cook, the deputy that was helping them, remembered a phone call he had a few weeks 
about one Charles Albright. The woman said she was friends with Mary Pratt and dated Charles briefly, so that one that he would bring over for parties. And she called into the the police department. Her friend got murdered. Yeah, her friend got murdered. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. She said that he was very nice, but had an odd love for eyes. Mm. Oh. She also mentioned that he kept X-Acto blades in his attic. Oh, man. It's all coming together. It is. Really, there's a lot of pieces. And I know we (laughs) have the evidence. We have the... uh, ability to have hindsight and look back on it all but at the time i mean that's a lot of good puzzle pieces falling together at the same time in order yeah, yeah. i'm sure they were so excited just losing it as everything was yeah, just falling like into red place flag, red flag light bulb <laughs> yeah. light bulb red flag like yeah. we got our guy yep. yeah <laughs> guilty <laughs> so matthews and smith took the mugshot of charles albright and their information to john westphalen the original detective on mm-hmm. the case. And he decided they were absolutely onto something. Yes. So he used his Charles Albright's mugshot in a lineup of photos to show Brenda White and Veronica Rodriguez. Both Brenda and Veronica identified Charles. Of course. Yeah. Giving officers enough evidence to find and arrest Charles Albright. So, in the middle of the night, on March 22nd, 1991, police officers arrived at 1035 El Dorado, and Charles was arrested. He never said a word. Just oh, really? Plead the yeah. fifth? Just like, I'd like to see my lawyer. Got out of bed. And <laughs> Did he ask for a lawyer? No. And that's when, like, when you know that somebody, because usually people would be like, what is this for? What do you mean? And he's like, well, no, he just I know what this is for. <laughs> We've also seen a lot of movies and whatnot. That's true. <laughs> Maybe in 1991, that wasn't the first go-to. That's true. That's now, true. that's the go-to. Yeah. So, having discovered who did this, Matthews and Smith were assigned to take him in for questioning. Smith recalled while driving, Charles didn't say a word. Matthew said that he looked back and remembered only seeing a darkness in his eyes. Mm. The irony. Yeah. Through the search of Charles Albright's home, investigators found many things, including true crime books, exacto blades, and guns, but unfortunately none that matched the murder weapons. No forty-four caliber, no none of that. None of that. So they continued their search on his other properties, obviously. And on one... He had a barn full of jars that contained pickled animals. Oh, man. I thought you were going to say eyes. Oh, I thought, yeah, I did, too. I was like, oh, gross. You got your <laughs> We found them. Well. <laughs> what do you mean there's no evidence? <laughs> there were eyes. <laughs> Unfortunately, they weren't the women's eyes. They were pig eyes. Ugh. They never found the women's eyes. He ate them. So, but he had pig's eyes and snakes and lizards in jars pickled. Gross. That is a random assortment. I hope he had them all labeled properly. (laughs) You don't want to mix those up. Don't mix them up ever. (laughs) So, the trial began on December 13th, 1991. During the trial, there were a few things that didn't go the prosecution's way. Oh, I hate when that happens. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Rodriguez decided last minute to testify for the defense. She, yeah. 
Why? She got cold feet. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> she said that she had never been with Albright and that John Westphalen had co- coerced her into picking Albright's photo in the lineup. Now, was she one that what? dated him? No. She was, she was the, the one, one that, that escaped got away. the Okay. Yeah, the first time. Okay. It'd make more sense if it was the one he was dating. Yeah, or maybe she was pissed at the the authorities for something else and decided, screw them, I'm not going to help them out. Yeah, or maybe the defense offered her something. We can only speculate. Oh, yeah, yeah, threatened her. We don't know. Yeah, if he's innocent and then gets out, he's going to come for her first. That's another thing that scares defendants off, or not defendants, witnesses off. Yeah. It's like, what if they aren't convicted guilty and then I got a target on my back? Yeah, that's true. And then also, Axton Schindler continued to deny saving Veronica from Charles Albright. This fucking guy. What? What is his deal? He just likes the cheap rent. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't (laughs) want to be involved. Yeah, probably not. I don't know. Weird. After a couple murders and you're direct involvement i would definitely be throwing that guy under the bus like yeah it's probably my landlord he's probably guilty keep me out of everything for really from here on but yeah guilty agreed so the prosecution they did focus on the little evidence that they had the little evidence well <laughs> physical evidence <laughs> The little physical <laughs> evidence. I seem to think that we've seen a lot of evidence. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can't find a murder weapon, but you found a bunch of jars full of eyes, and these girls are missing eyes, and you think that maybe that's not related? Yeah, I meant physical evidence. Obviously, that's evidence, but it's hard to convict Prosecute somebody, somebody. out yeah. physical evidence. Right. They only have circumstantial evidence. Yes, exactly. Okay. I gotcha. So... Forensics showed that hairs found on the bodies of the dead women were similar to hair samples taken from Charles Albright's head and pubic area. Okay, well, that's similar pretty damning how- right there. Well, yeah. But hair- similar how? So, like, they, are they his or aren't they? Hair evidence is hard because you can't exactly tell. Like, it's similar, but there's a ton that- of other people that could have the same hair. Mm. Oh right, that makes sense. Maybe, okay. maybe in the nineties. I, I think now it's like straight DNA. Yeah, because can't you pull DNA off your hair? Yep. Yeah, maybe it was just back Guilty. then. We got him. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Cracked the case. There was <laughs> there was also hair found in the back of Albright's truck that was similar to the hair of the first two women, Mary Pratt. She had a and bag of their hair? Patterson. No, no, they were just found in his <laughs> truck. Where did you get that? I'm already on the guilty conviction here. <laughs> bag of hair. He did not have a bag of hair, okay. No. Uh, there's just strands of hair found in his truck. Oh, exactly. strands. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I just what I wanted there. <laughs> so, you're like, he has jars of eyeballs. He might as well have bags of hair. hair too. <laughs> no, not bags, just hairs. This is why I don't ever get jury duty. So then there was one evidence that one piece of evidence that directly tied Albright to Shirley Williams. Okay. They found hair on the yellow rain court of yellow raincoat, not court, of mm. Shirley Williams that they were unable to identify at first. Okay. So it was hair that was 
different, and they didn't know what it was. Well, she's a sex worker. They found the same type of hair in Charles Albert's vacuum cleaner in his house. After examination from experts, it was found to be squirrel hair. I was going to say it was probably an animal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking because of his taxidermy, like he had a squirrel back there and then he put uh, Shirley Williams Yeah. How many squirrel hair do you guys have in your houses? (laughs) Zero. Uh, (laughs) Zero. I can tell you pretty certainly I have zero squirrel hair, zero bear hair, zero deer hair. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, so, dog hair, though. If they found dog hair, oh, I'd be gosh. like, shit, they, they, could they could My entire house. Yeah. So they assume that he vacuumed the back of his truck, and that's how the hairs got in there, and then surely it must have been in the back of his truck, and that's how the hairs got on her. I just don't understand or he how took he's her back. not convicted at this point. Well, that's the only apparent evidence that they have, I guess. Well, well, well now I've talked about the defense. I haven't even gotten there yet. Well, we're already on the guilty conviction here. Well, <laughs> <laughs> did they only try one victim at a time or did they go for all at once? Um, they were, it was all in the same. So they said you're guilty of five, four, four murders. Three. But no, three murders. I'm not even there yet. Let me get through the defense, okay. and then we'll <laughs> deal We're very with. excitable. <laughs> yeah, deal with the what's it called? Uh, prosecution? No. Trial? Put down the hammer. The verdict. You just <laughs> pick where you left off, and we'll <laughs> we'll just we'll just we'll just uh, tag along for wherever you take us. Go ahead. So the defense. They attempted to convince the jury that the killer was probably Axton Schindler. What? Huh. I mean, he was there when he when Veronica got beat. Okay, how many yeah, eyes did he have? Only for Veronica's. Yeah. Yes. Not, he's not tied to any of the others. And he was a witness for the one when the lady ran to him and said, "This other guy's trying to kill me." Yeah. So, so. the reason, one of the reasons why or what the defense used it that there was an empty 44 caliber bullet box found behind his house. Also there the house go. that There's Charles owned. Bit of evidence. Oh. Charles owned that house, but that was a uh, technically Fred owned them all. Well, true. Well, yes. So that was kind of all they had. So that was their de- whole f- defense. We found some empty bullet casings in Charles's <laughs> house. Yeah. Albright never testified and sat quietly slumping in his chair throughout the trial. Really? So on December 18th, jury found Charles Albright guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison for the only the murder of Shirley Williams. Okay. Although it was stated in trial that he was probably responsible for the other two, he was only convicted of the murder of Shirley Williams because of that hair evidence that they found of the squirrel. So That's how they got him? Yeah, literally a squirrel. <laughs> Great detective work. <laughs> After everything else. Well, I mean, in court, you have to prove, like, beyond reasonable doubt, you know? Yeah, you can't just I know. Jars of eyes would do it for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The jars of eyes, I'd just put two and two together and be like, well, I mean, that's enough circumstantial evidence for me. No doubts here. He's guilty. Well, it was yeah. for them, too, because he was convicted and spent life That's in prison. Good. That's all I care about. Yeah, exactly. So that was only the 90s. How long did he stay in prison? So he, uh, many years, um, 
In his prison cell, Heavers is reported to have drawings of beautiful women with beautiful eyes, taped one after the other across the walls of his cell. He's quite the artist. Yeah. Yeah. Then, on August 22nd of 2020, Charles died at West Texas Regional Medical Facility in Lubbock, Texas. That was after COVID wow. even started. How did he make yeah. it that far? I know. Died- How did he end up in Lubbock, though? That it's seems the, really close to where I'm at. It's just probably the best prison. close to where I'm at. Lubbock is like south. It could also just be the, the best prison to it's secure someone of his stature. Huh? It could just be the most high security prison to secure him too, or things yeah. like that. The, yeah, he was the judge probably moved. Decides, the judge decides which prisons you go to. That's right. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought they so were just how like. How old was he when he died? Fuck. Almost 90? No, yeah, 33, 33 to 20. 20. Oh, yeah. I know how to do math. It's like 87. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. we're all really bad at math. Well, other than Carrie. <laughs> I'm going I'm to ballpark in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 87 or so. I don't know. So that is all I have for you guys. Um, I thought this was a super interesting case and made me really think about the idea of nurture versus nature for serial okay. killers. And this is brought up a lot because was it their nature? Was that just who they were or was it nurture? And so, both. Yeah. yeah both, I kind of feel like both in this case because his crazy mom who's tying him to porches. Like who? Yes. Yeah. That's so a little. That nurture. But also his infatuation with eyeballs and yeah. taxidermy and. At, at that age too, and killing animals. I mean, it's definitely nature and nurture every time. I, I first, I always thought it was nurture, and then as I learned more and more about a lot of these cases, I became convinced. I mean, it's, I think it's a combination yeah, of the two. I disagree. Sometimes it's just one. Sometimes it's just the other. But a lot of the oh. times, it is a combination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Sometimes I was going to say I thought you were just saying it's never one or the other because sometimes people grow up with great childhoods and then turn into a monster some you know people are wired wrong yeah for sure. some people are abused into that situation so agreed i think it's the whole spectrum yeah but that was very interesting yeah i really one it was interesting to research i was like this is gonna be a good one and he's just been down in your neck of the woods for the last 90 almost 90 years yeah, that's crazy to think about. Right by you. <laughs> Man. That's- well, uh, Shalise, I'm glad you uh, recorded with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was fun. Did you like it? Maybe I can come on as a guest later on. Yeah. Yeah, she just come on every one. episode for all we care. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Around. We'll be here. <laughs> We're here uh, every we other week. Earlier. <laughs> yeah. We know you're busy and we're here every other week. So whenever you feel like it, you just let us know. Oh, I will. Definitely. (laughs) All right, Cass. That was awesome. Well, there you have it, folks. We hope you enjoyed Cassidy's story as much as we did this evening. And a special thanks to Shalise for joining us as well. Cass, where can uh, people find us? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at the Macabre Family Hour. And our email is the macabre family hour at gmail.com. Send us your opinions on this story or future requests for our next ones. And as always, 
Good night from our macabre family to yours. Good night. Good night.